Dominic was born on October 31st, 2012. And um, I remember it was, it was, yes, it was Halloween. Uh, but there were other things going on. But I remember talking to Elena right after he was born. And he was sitting in, in the, the, new, um, the new baby section or part of the hospital, whatever that room is, where, the, where you take the new babies, but not, yeah. If you've, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I remember some of the time I was trying to, to explain, just to talk and spin fill a lot of the time. Uh, because she had just given birth to a child, and it was this, the most amazing thing I ever witnessed in my life. And I was like, you don't need to talk. Here, I'll, I'll do the talking. I remember I explained, I tried to explain the Harden trade, which had just taken place, and uh, James Harden had just been traded from Oklahoma City to the Houston Rockets. And I was trying to explain what a big deal this was, and what a steal it was, and how awesome it was. And she was just like nodding and staring at Dominic. Um, but then I also said... Can't, honey, can't you just wait until he's 15 and he hates us and he wants to run away? <laughs> and I said that, not, not you know, part of it out of, out of a joke, but also like, okay, I just want to temper our expectations. We have this, this amazing angelic cherub in front of us and remembering that he is going to grow at some point. We can't predict where it is and we cannot assume that the child, the infant born, is going to be this, act the same way, behave the same way, just, just lay there cooing the rest of his life. During the, the stay-at-home order, we have been in the house a lot, um, all together, all a lot. Um, when you're around small children, a lot, there is a great temptation from time to time to scold. But has scolding ever, ever really worked as a long-term strategy? Clean your room, make your bed, brush your teeth, eat your food. I mean, it may like get them to take one more bite of food, but um, it doesn't make turn them into the kind of person who wants to eat their food. It may make them make their bed one extra time, but it's not going to turn them into the person who thinks, "Oh, I should be, I should make my bed." Scolding will get your kids maybe to turn Alexa down, Alexa Volume Four. But it won't make them consider the other people around them and that if they blast their music, it could be hurt the ears of people around them. We often make an assumption that our kids understand where we're coming from or our friends or our neighbors and family understand where we're coming from and that they desire to grow into honest, kind, loving people like all of us are, obviously. We take it as a given that people want to see the world as we see the world. We see the temptation to scold as a society in a lot of ways today. The internet is full of it. Real life is full of it. People scold you for wearing a mask and then scold you for not wearing a mask. People scold you for not supporting local businesses and then scold you for being out of your house for five seconds. Now, I'm not talking about any of you, just just people, just other people, of course. A lot of scolding. Scolding may stop Ephraim from standing on a book but it's not going to make him want to read that book. Scolding may, st- may make someone jump out of the street, but it's not going to change them. Our polarized society seems even more polarized, and the little communication up- across political lines today is mostly re- reduced to scolding or trolling. Now, no one has ever become a Christian from being scolded or from being trolled. No one ever thought to themselves, now that person's scolding me, I want what they have. Or, or that person trolling me and making fun of what I say and how I walk, I want to have, how can I have the peace that is in their life? One way 
one of the ways of sharing the Christian faith, like what Paul does on the Mars Hill on the Areopagus, is called apologetics. And now J.D. gave this wonderful uh, explanation of, of what Paul was doing. Here's an actual picture from Athens. This is the hill that Paul would stand on. This is, um, yeah, this is the, the Mars Hill, the Areopagus, that people would go. You can see why it's a little elevated, why people would go to this area. Anyone, oh, Joe's up on the Areopagus. I, I might go and have a word with him. But what, what Paul was doing that day has been called apologetics. It is from the Greek word apologia, which means def- defense, to defend. And we understand the English word apology from that. I think a good definition of apologetics comes from uh, Paul, Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone you, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be able to give a reason is a translation of apologion, the apology, um, apologetics. Be able to explain why you believe. Not, not be able to scold all the people around you who disagree with you or, or troll people who are living differently than you, but to give an example of why you believe. Apologetics is discursive. It uses words responses, dialogues, but you have to be in a position to give an account. When is someone ready to hear what God is doing in this world and what God can be doing in their life? I don't think you can ever really know for sure, but there are, there are some things to think about as well to be able to offer not just why it may be true that Jesus is Lord, but why the life of following Jesus is desirable. We can't assume that the world is just about the adjudication of facts. I mean, the world is not like a high school debate program. It's really like the difference between a 2D, a 3D, and a 4D world. The 2D version, the world is like a debate stage. There's two sides that go back and forth at a zero sum. One wins or the other wins. Like one wins, the other loses. And every encounter is like that. But that is not the world we live in. Sometimes it's easy to mistake that maybe the world is is a 3D world. It's a little less limited. It allows that there are more than two people, more than two sides of the world, but it is still static. I can can twist um, the metaphor a little bit to bring us back to those magic eye pictures, if you remember from many years ago. I remember it like in a mall that you're supposed to stand there and stare at the picture. I never could. I never got the 3D image. It didn't work for me. But I heard that if you stare there, you can get it. But it seemed like this special knowledge for other people. I think for a lot of folks in the world who aren't, aren't people of faith, that's often what, what Christianity seems like. It can seem like a special knowledge for other people and not for them. 3D animation has gotten so amazing nowadays. It can seem so lifelike, but it, it only shows us the illusion of motion. Objects don't really move. Even like the fanciest Pixar movie is really at its heart just like a flip book. And you have these figures and they move. It looks like that guy is being taken into space, but it is just note cards moving back and forth in slight motion. Now, when we we move to the 4D world, we include the variable of time. And this is the time that we all live with. Time keeps on slipping, 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 slipping into 
the future. But that is not the best pop song account of how time affects all of us. I would go with the birds who quoted Solomon in Ecclesiastes, and we'll, we'll see if we can do this live. To everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal. You get the, you get the sense of that. There's seasons in life. Life is not just this one static line going on and on and on. There's seasons. It goes up and down. There's winters come. Physical winters and emotional winters and spiritual winters when we feel isolated and alone and cold and it's dark. And then there's spring and and the summers and seasons. There's physical summers and spiritual summers and emotional summers where we feel free and outside. I have probably used this passage from Ecclesiastes, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, in more pastoral counseling sessions than any other passage in the Bible. So much fear and anxiety is based on an assumption of the absoluteness of whatever moment we are living in. It is almost impossible to take a long view of ourselves. The present can be all-consuming. When it rains on us, it feels like it is raining everywhere. When it is hot in Texas, it is impossible to imagine it being cold anywhere else. Now, if we continue even with the weather, other people have vastly different experiences of to even start with the weather. Some people like it when it's hot outside. Others do not. We cannot assume that someone is going to have the exact same feelings as us. Other people in the world have vastly different life experiences. Experiences which shape all of us. People who are not in church have a reason for not being a part of a church. Whether it is a negative experience, a negative idea of Christians, or just indifference, those reasons should be honored. Life is complicated, and telling people it is not complicated is a lie. Life is complicated and hard and full of challenges, and joy and suffering and laughter and love and regret and all of those emotions we feel over different seasons. All of these emotions that, that other people feel in their own life, in their own seasons. Life is complicated but not impossible. Love is complicated, but not impossible. Loving our neighbor, offering ourselves to our neighbor is complicated, but not impossible. What Jesus teaches from the Sermon on the Mount is complicated, not impossible. We experience life in different ways and from different seasons. The principal form of evangelism that Jesus offers is not a set of facts or statutes, but a holy life. A holy life not of moralism and judgment of others, but of humility and lightness of heart. Taking pleasure in creation, taking joy in the peculiarities of our neighbors and family. Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is not itself a command, but a description of reality. If you love God, evidence for that love will be apparent in a holy life of love. But Jesus does it leave us to commandments alone? If that were the case, scolding 
maybe important or effective for faith. If, if all we had was, was following rules, then we should use any means to tell others to follow these rules. But that is not what is going on because we have a literal advocate. Jesus continues in chapter 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. Peter and Paul tell us to give an account. Not a perfect account, an account. God is love, and in God there is no darkness at all. God's mercy is here for us wherever we are, but more than that, God's mercy is for the whole world, and we are a part of that mercy. We do not only receive mercy, but can offer ourselves as vessels of mercy through the Holy Spirit who transforms our lives more and more into lives of love. You are not alone. When the schools closed and the stay-at-home orders started coming in, there was a tweet going around about how, uh, how Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a quarantine. Thank you, thank you Roseanne Cash, for, for making me feel horrible. Um, it is easy to feel inadequate in the face of this. We may see friends who've completely reorganized their garage or learned new instruments or who were actually able to make a dollar peed out of centipedes on Animal Crossing. It actually happened the other day. The world is full of ways to make us feel inadequate. You are not alone. What you have done does not define you. The love of God offers, the love God offers for us is neither efficient nor productive. It is not about boosting our resume or making our friends envious. You are loved. And everyone deserves to realize that they are loved, that they are forgiven. A life that points to God, a holy life of love and patience and humility and long-suffering kindness that expects nothing in return. If we seek God, the seasons of our time and the seasons of others' time And God's time will all intersect. And the life Jesus offers is not just true, but full and hopeful and comforting in hard times. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble, in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We can offer our children a pattern of living that matches the life of Jesus by welcoming the Holy Spirit, the advocate into the pattern of our life by doing the things of God. This is also the way we offer Jesus to our neighbor. We don't gear up for battle. We don't like study up and make sure we have a comeback for any kind of question. We try to live a holy life set apart realizing that desiring the things of God is so much more fulfilling, so much more worthwhile than desiring things of destruction and immediate gratification, that God offers us something more and that is something worth sharing. God is here for us in our lives. And we can share life in patience and humility. The holy life is a desirable life. It is a fulfilling and beautiful and life-changing life. Faith isn't about avoiding some things, but stepping into the person we were created to be, people of love. 
Offer love this day, my brothers and sisters, and God will be with you. Offer love to your children, to your neighbors, to your family, to your parents. Offer love in humility and grace, knowing that you don't have to fix them, but you can offer a path, offer a path that is, that is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who is not weary these days? Who is not in need of rest? It's so easy to be overwhelmed with the possibilities of rest and isolation. Or if you feel like you were doing all right, to realize there's so much that you could be doing and not doing, but God is not telling us to feel guilty, to think about the King Lear's we should have written, but to start this day and to take a step of love, a new step. A step of holy living, of, of seeking God. Holy living is not about being, being boring or being no more fun or whatever it can be. It's a, it's a life of love and lightness, of taking joy in who we are with, of taking joy in our neighbors, and of seeing God in the faces of those around us. Take a new step this day. Do not compare yourselves to others. Love and pray and serve, for God is with you. We are not alone. Thanks be to God.